Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds, it was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like, da, 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Janis Joplin died at the age of 27, and she lived a life that was as auspicious as it was tragic. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Seven would be the number of months her debut solo LP would remain on the charts as it ushered her into the upper echelons of the booming rock and roll world. One would be the number of her signature songs that was hand-delivered under very illegal circumstances, to the man in black, no less before it would work its way third-hand to her ears. Two more would be the number of people close to her who would OD on junk in quick succession and who left pretty clear writing on the wall that she would either choose to read or ignore. Another one would be the number of hours she'd spend behind bars after the police finally found a reason to put her rabble-rousing, law-defying ass in cuffs. And 16 would be the number of months she had left to live when her band began to wear disguises to ward off the watchful eye of Hoover-era G-Men. On this, our eighth episode of season three, The Man in Black, ODs, Rabble Rousing, Hoover's G-Men and Janis Joplin walking a winding path to liberation. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
Johnny Cash watched from the back porch of his Henderson, Tennessee estate as the helicopter set down between his mansion and Old Hickory Lake. It was an uninvited helicopter, which was the only kind of helicopter that ever landed in Johnny Cash's backyard. His first reaction was to panic. Then the copter landed with its nose pointed at the mansion, so Johnny wasn't able to read what was written on the side. What if it was the cops? He had pills stashed inside every guitar case and every sock drawer inside the house. But they were prescription pills, so they'd have no grounds to bust him. At least not to arrest him. He'd played that game before. He'd also played the game where he was arrested and let off in handcuffs. The bust in Walker County, Georgia was still fresh in his mind. He was high as a kite that day and decided he wanted to see some Civil War relics. Johnny got it in his head that the best way to accomplish that mission was to start ringing doorbells of houses in the neighborhood. Walker County residents opened their doors on that fine afternoon, only to find the man in black, stoned out of his gourd, eyes half-masked, drool running down the left side of his chin, babbling about the Battle of Chickamauga. He tried to bribe the arresting deputy with a wad of damp $100 bills from his pocket. That was a mistake. Now in 1967, Johnny Cash listened to the copter's blades as they made that high-pitched grinding noise they make once the engine's been cut. I wondered if he had made another mistake. It was possible. He couldn't remember them all. And then he wondered if there was a different reason that he should be nervous. Perhaps he should run inside to fetch his shotgun. Maybe this fool pilot had no clue whose backyard he just landed in. Johnny thought about grabbing his shotgun and then giving this fool pilot the ultimate introduction. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. The copter's door opened and Johnny breathed a sigh of relief. The pilot was alone. He wasn't there to make trouble, and he certainly wasn't there to call out Johnny Cash on another mistake. The man's shoulder-length hair was whipped around in the air by the copter's blade's residual motion. A lit cigarette stuck out from his bushy beard. In one hand, he held a pull-top can of beer, in the other a quarter-inch demo reel. The man was also carrying a huge grin, a dumb grin if you ask Johnny, and the closer he got to the mansion's porch, the more Johnny found that dumb grin familiar. And then it hit him. This was the guy who pushed the broom at Columbia Records' Nashville office. This was the guy who had given Johnny a demo tape weeks ago while he was cleaning the bathroom. He was the one and the same fellow with the same grin who, at least a year or two earlier, had introduced himself to Johnny backstage after a show. At that point, he wasn't wearing a janitor's uniform, but an army uniform. And you remember that guy had two first names for his first and last name, Bob Roberts or Jim James or Dick Richards or something. Chris Christopherson, that was it. Kid had a set of balls on him landing that bird in Johnny Cash's goddamn lawn. He was real close to the porch now, and he raised a hand with the reel in the air as a greeting. You the janitor at the office, Johnny yelled from the porch. Christopherson, I'm afraid I uh, misplaced the tape you gave me, son. Actually, Cash had politely taken the tape and then eventually tossed it into the middle of Old Hickory Lake when he got home that night. That was fine, Chris replied. That was just fine. He had another one. Chris acknowledged the set of balls he had on him. He figured Johnny Cash was thinking about that. He was thankful that Johnny Cash wasn't holding a shotgun in his hand, but now, now was the time for a set of balls. Cause see here, the reason he knew how to land a helicopter in Johnny Cash's backyard, Chris Christopherson flew copters in Germany for the army for three years. And then he flew copters to offshore oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico after he left the army. He could put a bird down in a man's lawn with a road soda in one hand and his fucking eyes closed if he wanted to. That's just the sort of man Chris Christopherson was. 
His father and grandfathers before him were military men, and they all wanted Chris to be a military man. They groomed him for it in Brownville, Texas. And the first time he put the army on hold was to attend Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. He wrote a novel and a dissertation on William Blake. But the second time, the second time he left the army was when he turned down an offer to teach English at West Point. Instead, he moved his family to Nashville and took a bottom-rung day job pushing a broom across Columbia Records' dirty Nashville floors, just so he could increase the chances that he'd someday pass someone just like Johnny Cash in the hallway and slip him his demo reel. As Johnny Cash knew, Nashville came with its own set of vices, amphetamines, tranquilizers, whiskey, bourbon, and lots of beer. Chris Christopherson played the part, lived the life, hard, Johnny Cash could relate. Johnny Cash could see it in the wrinkles in Chris Christopherson's face and the worn-down eyes that hid behind that big, dumb grin. Chris's wife had left him. She took the kids. Chris was about 30 years old, just a few years Johnny's junior. He told himself that he hadn't made his life choices in vain. He hadn't left behind the army in West Point and the Gulf of Mexico and Oxford and his marriage. Hadn't left it all behind for nothing. Johnny Cash was going to listen to his goddamn demo reel even if he had to go up in a helicopter and land it on the lawn of Johnny Cash's Henderson mansion. And so, that's what he goddamn did. He said this to Johnny Cash, took a haul off a pull-top beer can that was now offering diminishing returns, and made his smile even bigger. Now that he had done it, now that he was standing there in Johnny Cash's yard with that beer and that demo reel, with Johnny Cash looking standoffish, potentially contemplating a few rounds of buckshot to scare the stalker janitor off his property, Chris Christopherson wondered if it had been a good idea after all, or just some crazy act of career suicide before his career even had any life. But Johnny Cash thought it was a hell of an entrance, and the most goddamn persistent and pig-headed thing he'd seen in years. So he put Chris Christopherson's tape on the hi-fi, liked what he heard, and soon, Johnny Cash was covering Chris Christopherson's songs on his weekly television show. Soon, Chris's demos were grabbing the attention of not just Nashville cats, but Hollywood's counterculture too. From Sam Peckinpah to Dennis Hopper and every dusty Harley riding urban cowpoke in between. But one of those songs was Me and Bobby McGee. Its lyrics were picked up by Nashville outlaws, California hippies, and pretty much everyone in between is a battle cry for their underdog causes. Bob Newworth heard it somewhere, the way Bob Newworth heard things. He was there, he was everywhere. He was always on the scene or making the scene or somewhere scene adjacent. A songwriter, singer, and producer, Newworth was also an aide-de-camp, a confidant, and a fixer when needed. And he had recently spent some time fixing for Jim Morrison at the doors and keeping him on the straight and narrow. Now, at the insistence of Albert Grossman, who had his own concerns about Janis Joplin, Newworth was spending time with Janis and her new band. Newworth was in Grossman's office when he heard me and Bobby McGee for the first time, played by Canadian singer-songwriter Gordon Lightfoot. He knew exactly who the song was meant for. He closed his eyes and he could picture Janis Joplin singing it. Teach me that song, man, Newworth insisted, and Gordon played it again, real slow. Newworth grabbed the pencil and paper. He wrote it down fast, learned it quick, and then did his own impression of a helicopter landing on Janis Joplin's front steps to deliver something that she just had to hear.
J. Edgar Hoover's desk was all memos. An ecosystem of memos. Piles of paper on high-ranking officials stacked high next to piles of paper on low-ranking degenerates. Reports for the director's eyes only. Reports on good guys breaking bad and bad guys getting worse. Recommendations on who should be watched like a hawk and who could be left alone to mind their own damn business. It was 1970. J. Edgar Hoover was 75 years old. He'd seen it all. For nearly half a century and in the service of seven U.S. presidents as director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, J. Edgar Hoover had a memo on every subversive, every commie sympathizer, every fascist organizer, every civil rights empathizer. No memo was unimportant. No threat to the United States was too small. And the coffee maker on the table near the desk in his office gurgled and spat steam. That universal sound that meant that the java was nearly finished with its orderly perk and warm caffeination was nigh. Hoover inhaled the smell of the light roast and picked up a memo that lay on top of a short stack of papers on the corner of his desk. Urgent teletype, it read at the top. Possible violence. Ravinia Park Concert, Highland Park, Illinois, August 5th, 1970. This wasn't the first confidential rock and roll memo he'd read, and it wouldn't be the last. In fact, memos on rock stars had become increasingly commonplace in Hoover's world. Rock and roll was proving itself to be a very clear and very present danger to decency and good morals. In the 50s, the memos were about the various death threats and extortion attempts on Elvis Presley. In the 60s, the memos were about the Kingsman's filthy song, Louie Louie, which Hoover knew was a piece of trash, even if their investigation hadn't conclusively proved it was a piece of trash. And now, as the 60s became the 70s with Richard Nixon at the helm, the memos were on the rock and roll subversives and street fighting types. Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin. Hoover read on. Reliable source advised that rock concert is to be held at Ravinia Park beginning approximately 8 p.m., featuring rock singer Janis Joplin. Source crowd estimated to be in neighborhood of 20,000 persons. Hoover walked over to the coffee maker, pulled the carafe from the drip, and started to pour himself a director-sized cup of joe. He kept one eye on the pour and one eye on the memo. He kept reading. Source further advises unconfirmed reports have been received of possible attempts to disrupt concert and cause violence in area by unknown persons, possibly by some of those involved in disruption of Chicago Grant Park concert July 27, 1970. Source further advised that Ravinia Park area was to be heavily patrolled by some 200 police officers from nearby communities. Goddamn Grant Park, Hoover thought to himself as he blew on the hot liquid and attempted to take a first sip that wouldn't burn his lips to hell. Grant Park had been a shit show. It was pitched as a free show by Sly and the Family Stone, and you better believe the Bureau had some memos on that bunch of left coast shit show starters. The free show was both an apology and a peace offering to Chicago. After Sly had bailed on playing some shows in town, and not just bailing, but bailing after making audiences wait for hours. But at Grant Park, Chicago was still pissed at Sly when he showed up, only to be made to wait again. The crowd grew throughout the day, and so did the temperature. Soon the crowd was around 50,000 strong, and the mercury was topping out at 90-something. Rumors started to spread throughout the audience that Sly was standing them up once more. When Chicago was tired of waiting again, that's when the rocks started flying. And the bottles, whatever people could get their hands on, mud clots, sticks, stones. The throngs of cops on hand that day took the brunt of the hurled projectiles. Bottles to the face, rocks to the balls. They picked up their attackers' weapons and retaliated. Cops jumped kids, kids jumped cops, storefront windows busted, shots fired into the air to scare the mob into submission. They only made the mob go harder. 
Hundreds of people, including Chicago police officers, were injured. 30 cops went into the hospital that day. Hoover sat down at his desk and read over the Ravinia Park memo again. His coffee cup started to make its inevitable stain on another stack of memos nearby. As shitty as Grant Park was, this Janis Joplin show had the potential to be even worse. J. Edgar Hoover didn't like Janis Joplin. She was a loose-lipped hippie succubus with a voice like a strangled cat in heat. But worse, she was a troublemaker, a rabble-rouser. She hailed from San Francisco, the land of rabble-rousers. She was a drunk. She was loud. She had a filthy mouth. She wasn't a lady. She was too masculine. For J. Edgar Hoover, not masculine enough, but that's a whole other story. Hoover knew that Janis Joplin had a long history of disturbing the peace. The first memo on Janis Joplin that Hoover remembered seeing was when she was a student at the University of Texas at Austin, living with that group of commie and civil rights sympathizers at the ghetto. And then her first group, Big Brother and the Holding Company, were nearly arrested for disturbing the peace at the Matrix in San Francisco. Worst of all, however, was her show at the Curtis Hickson Hall in Tampa, Florida. This was the year before, 1969 just a few months after Jim Morrison unzipped his pants to let his crawling king snake out while on stage in Miami. What the hell is it about Florida, Hoover thought as he took another gentle sip of his steaming hot coffee. Janice's new band, the one assembled by Skip Prokop, was calling themselves the Cosmic Blues Band and touring behind a new record. I got them old Cosmic Blues again, mama. But Skip was out of the picture, having jumped ship when Janice wouldn't give Sam Andrew the boot who followed her from Big Brother. Skip didn't think Sam was good enough, so Skip was out and Sam was in. As was Bill King on keyboards, John Till on guitar, Brad Campbell on bass, and Mari Baker on drums, along with a horn section, at least at that particular moment. If Big Brother had maintained a steady lineup of players, then the Cosmic Blues Band was practically a revolving door of musicians. It was unsteady, and the unsteadiness was in full display on that November night in Tampa at the Curtis Hickson Hall. So was Janice's infamous rabble-rousing temper, the one that Hoover could count on like a well-maintained wristwatch. But when she started the slow simmer of summertime, the crowd of nearly 3,500 people bum-rushed the stage. They pressed their bodies closer to hear every nuance in her voice. They stood on chairs to see every move she made with the microphone clenched tightly in her fist. And the cops on duty saw the crowd's behavior as the early warning sign of an impending riot. The same kind of thing the cops had seen at the door show in Miami and the door show at the Singer Bowl in Queens. The cops didn't wait to spring into action. They yanked people down off their chairs. They grabbed kids standing in the aisles by the shoulders and pushed them towards their seats. One officer even had a bullhorn and was screaming within inches of petrified kids' faces. And that's when Janice lost it. Don't fuck with those people, she yelled into her microphone, yelling as loud as she could so that she could be heard over the bullhorn's nasally whine. The bullhorn became a weapon. The cop waved it at heads and faces, his free hand firmly caressing his billy club. He just wanted someone to give him a reason to use it. And Janice was happy to be that someone. Hey, mister, Janice yelled again, this time looking the cop right in his eyes. Why the fuck are you so uptight, man? Did you buy a $5 ticket to the show? And that was all the cop needed. Just as the G-men had suspected for some time, obscene Janice went blue. She cursed on stage, numerous times, each time directed at an officer of the law, even. And they arrested her in her dressing room right after the band finished their set. She was led out of the Curtis Hickson Hall in handcuffs, past the thousands of kids who had pressed themselves close to be near her, past B.B. King, the Chicago blues legend who had opened the show. 
An hour later, Janice posted a $504 bond and walked out of the Tampa police station. She walked out wearing a fur coat and a fur hat. When J. Edgar Hoover read about Janice Joplin's Tampa arrest in 1969, that was the detail that pissed him off the most. The fur coat and the fur hat. Walking out of the police station like she was victorious, like she was anything but what Hoover knew her to be. A subversive, a rabble-rouser, a threat to the decency and good morals of the American people. J. Edgar Hoover would keep his eye on her, and the FBI would maintain a file on her, and they'd keep their nerves caffeinated and their teletypes urgent, and they would get her. They'd get to Janice Joplin by getting to someone close to her first. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. <laughs> I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for 40% off site-wide at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. 
The G-men staking out Bill King's parents' place were waiting for him when he arrived. They sat in sedans that idled in the darkness. The air outside was cold, and the wind kicked up and the hemlock trees creaked. Indiana, December, 1968. The 22-year-old had traveled home for the holidays, high off his new role as Janis Joplin's keyboardist and musical director. He had no idea that someone would step out of an idling sedan, toss a half-smoked Marlboro to the frigid asphalt, and stop him from ever reaching his parents' front door. Just days before, the Cosmic Blues Band had been guests of honor at Stax Records' holiday show in Memphis. One of Janice's idols, Otis Redding, had been dead a year, but Stax, Otis's record label, soldiered on. The homegrown talent on display was undeniable. Booker T and the MGs, Carla and Rufus Thomas, Johnny Taylor, Eddie Floyd. And the shadow of Otis loomed large, as did the shadow of Martin Luther King Jr., who had been shot dead only eight months earlier at the Lorraine Motel the same motel where Bill, Janice, and the band were staying while they were in town. The band had gone through many personnel changes, but they were finding their footing, and Bill was hopeful that a starring role in a stack show with the high-octane R&B icons that Janice loved would help raise their game. They'd appeal to the shadow of Otis Redding to guide them. But the shadow of Otis wasn't in a guiding kind of mood. Despite her newfound popularity, Janice Joplin was still an acolyte in the hallowed temple of soul. The mostly black audience saw the cosmic blues band as a Xerox of the real thing. Janice was either brave or stupid to follow Eddie Floyd and open with a cover of Eddie Floyd's song, Raise Your Hand. Then Janice sang the Bee Gees to love somebody like Otis would have done it. Searching, pleading, a raw nerve that only got rawer as the band went from soft to loud. She thought back to Otis's show at the Fillmore that she'd seen, the one she attended high on LSD, Spiked Cold Duck and thought of how that music made her feel. She closed her eyes, held out her hand in agony, and waited for Otis's spirit to grab it and pull her higher. She never left the ground. And for the soul crowd in Memphis, something was missing. Bill wished that they were hiding that something, an ace in their back pocket, but no dice. And now, back in Indiana at his parents' place for some spiced fruitcake and holiday cheer, Bill King found something else hiding, hiding in plain sight. Bill was met on the sidewalk by a man in glasses with comb black hair and a nondescript gray suit. Mr. King, the man in glasses asked. Bill was caught off guard. Someone says Mr. King and Bill starts looking around for his father. And Bill pointed at himself and cocked his head to the side in the universal nonverbal sign for who, me? Mr. Bill King, the man in glasses clarified. Bill nodded his head slowly. And Mr. Bill King, Hammond B3 organist, musical director for Miss Janis Joplin. The man in glasses confirmed that he was a Fed, and he was there to add another title to Bill King's growing list of superlatives, Vietnam War Draft Dodger. Bill King was under arrest. To Janice and the rest of the band, Bill had simply disappeared. He had gone home to visit his family for Christmas and never returned, and they had no way to get in touch with him. Janice didn't even know what town in Indiana he'd gone home to, and if he had told her, it was possible that she was too fucked up to hear him. Booze and smack had a hold on Janice. They gripped tight. They didn't want to let go. Gabriel Meckler, the producer hired to helm I Got Them Old Cosmic Blues Again Mama, knew it as soon as he heard Janice Joplin sing in the studio, that her voice was shot from all the drinking, the drugging, the smoking, the late nights, and the later mornings. Here they were, supposedly making Janice's big solo debut after her big brother departure, and her voice was shit. 
If Janice didn't make some sweeping changes, her voice wouldn't be the only thing that would be lost. She could be lost as quickly as Nancy Gurley was lost. Nancy, the wife of Big Brother guitarist James Gurley, didn't know the fix would be her last. In July 1969, Nancy and James hopped in their Toyota Jeep with their three-year-old son, Hongo, and went camping along the Russian River near Cloverdale, California. James packed the essentials, a tent, sleeping bags, a canoe, and a $100 baggie of heroin. They spent the day on the river. They boated, they swam, they fished. That night, James walked to the Toyota for a different catch. He fished the heroin baggie out of the glove box. He'd been drinking wine all night, so when he shot up, he missed his own vein. Nancy watched as James pulled the needle from his arm. She spoke up. She'd been trying to quit dope again, but as she watched her husband methodically press the syringe into his body, she fancied her own head out in the middle of the California wilderness. So James shot her up. This time, he didn't miss. Minutes later, Nancy took her last breath. She was 30 years old. James was charged with second-degree murder for giving his wife the deadly dose. When Janice learned of Nancy's death, she frantically searched for her own stash of junk, rang up Sam Andrew, and the two got as high as they could. Janice and Sam got high again in the hotel suite after a sold-out show at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Only this time, it was too much for Sam. When Janice realized that he wasn't breathing, she knew something was horribly wrong. She could feel her heartbeat in her ears. Her heart thudded and her ears burned. She ran into the bathroom and turned the bathtub faucet on, as cold as it would go. She felt the rhythm in her ears connect to the rhythm in her chest now, a sensation like something was going to pound straight through her body. She ran back into the suite's main room and stripped Sam naked, every limb slack and going cold. Someone else was in the room now. Janice's vision was blurred from the throbbing in her ears and in her chest. She couldn't make out a face, but she gestured wildly that she needed help, and the two of them carried Sam into the bathroom and dropped him into the cold water. Minutes later, Sam snapped back to life. Janice would feel the heartbeat in her ears again months later when, after a show in Winterland in San Francisco, the hit she gave herself proved to be too much. She felt it as soon as she pushed the plunger towards her arm, and the pounding continued. She shut her eyes and saw the man from her dreams, the one on the gold Harley with the orange flames, and then she was out. Her friends found her in her room, unconscious, her skin cold and blue. They were able to revive her just like she had revived Sam, and this time, she was luckier than Nancy Gurley. This time, she hadn't completely disappeared. Nancy Gurley had disappeared. Bill King had disappeared. And where the fuck was Bill King? In fact, it was Bill King's father, a World War II vet who landed at Normandy, who helped broker a deal with the feds on that December evening when Bill returned home for the holidays. If Bill would agree to join the army, then he could avoid jail time for his egregious draft dodging. And so he did. And then, as a grunt in basic training, Bill watched the Ed Sullivan show from his barracks, only to see Janis Joplin and the boys performing Eddie Floyd's Raise Your Hand, the cover version that he had arranged prior to his FBI intervention. Bill was crestfallen. Months later, on the night before he was to be shipped off to Vietnam, Bill went AWOL. He stood out on the side of some back street, stuck his thumb into the air, and hitched all the way to Canada. Word got back to Janice in the van. Bill King was starting over. And it was becoming clearer every day that he wasn't the only one who would need to put on a disguise and become 
a different person. Bob Newirth was in the middle of telling Brad Campbell that his name was no longer Brad Campbell. As he was speaking, Newirth ran a dark brown eyebrow pencil along the hairs of Campbell's blonde mustache. It was going to take a minute, he warned Campbell. This was a lot of mustache, a lot of blonde. And yes, this eyebrow pencil was really the only thing they had that would get the job done. Newirth traced the pencil along more blonde hairs, quick downward strokes from Campbell's nose to his lips. Sometimes a cluster of hairs would require more than a single pass. Like Newirth had said, it was a lot of mustache. Now tell me again what your name is, Newirth asked Campbell. Campbell, bass player for Janis Joplin's Cosmic Blues Band, clenched his eyes shut and twisted up his face like he was running through filing cabinets inside his head. Then he opened his eyes. Keith Cherry, he responded. Good, Newirth said, and continued to darken Campbell's blonde mustache. And where are you from? Campbell, a Canadian since the day he was born, didn't have to think about that answer. The United States, he answered. Newirth nodded his head in approval. That's right. That's good. That's very good. Keith Cherry from the United States, Newirth said and placed his hand on Campbell's chin to turn his head this way and that and inspect his final pencil strokes. Now it's time to do your sideburns. Word of Bill King's FBI bust had made its way back to Janice and the Cosmic Blues Band. The band's bass player, Brad Campbell, had a recently expired visa, and the band had a big show in New York City that they couldn't miss. Their collective paranoia was off the charts. What if the feds were targeting the whole band? What if Bill King was just the first to go down, and the rest of them were just sitting ducks, waiting unknowingly to fall like pawns in J. Edgar Hoover's diabolical game? The easiest target, surely, would be Brad Campbell and his expired visa. They wouldn't arrest Campbell but they'd sure as shit send him packing back to the Great White North. Janice couldn't handle losing two players in such quick succession, not with things going the way things were going. So they'd need to disguise Campbell. New look, new name, new everything. Enter Bob Newirth, rock and roll fixer. There was a reason why Newirth made the rounds, why it was found everywhere rock and roll was found blossoming in the 1960s. Newirth could see into people. He could see what made them tick, what got them going, got them riled, got them off. He saw what was happening in Cambridge, in Nashville, in Austin, in New York. He saw what was happening at Newport, at Monterey, at Woodstock. Newirth decided he was happy with Campbell's formerly blonde mutton chops. He told the bass player to put on a pair of dark sunglasses and then strategically placed Janice's fur hat on top of his head. With his tongue unconsciously mashed between his teeth, Newirth adjusted the hat just so and said out of the side of his mouth, if you wear the mask long enough, sooner or later, you become the mask. Campbell figured Newirth was just talking about the quick and dirty disguise job on his face, but Newirth was really thinking about Janice. Thinking about how, at some point in her quest for liberation from her past and from her hometown and from buzz-harshing squares in general, she had gotten lost. Lost in a tough-as-nail stage persona, which wasn't really her lost in heroin addiction, which had replaced the one-time meth addiction that she swore she wouldn't repeat. The least he could do, Newirth figured, was to put Janice at ease about the basis with the expired visa thing, and then, as a cherry on top of the Keith Cherry disguise, show her the song that Gordon Lightfoot had shown him. It was like it was written for her. 
Newworth looked into Janice's eyes as he played the song for her, me and Bobby McGee, and saw that she recognized it too. She'd never heard it before, but she recognized it. And Newworth's impact on Janice wouldn't end there. He would show up again at a crucial crossroads in Janice's life. Only this time, he'd have someone else in tow. He'd bring Chris Christofferson to Janice's doorstep. And Janice would feel as though she'd known Chris her whole life. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. This episode of The 27 Club is brought to you by Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I also host. Disgraceland is available only on the free Amazon Music app. To hear tons of insane stories about your favorite musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, Nirvana, Prince, Jerry Lee Lewis, The Grateful Dead, The Rolling Stones, Cardi B, and many, many more, go to amazon.com slash disgraceland. Or if you have an Echo device, just say, hey Alexa, play The Disgraceland podcast. The 27 Club is hosted and co-written by me, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. Matt Bowden mixes the show. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Our previous seasons on Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison are available for you to binge right now wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to find and follow The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media. And we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. Give that a follow. So get out there and spread the word about the 27 Club. You can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rockarola. What's up for your ears? Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner. The rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. 
Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.